So of all the sermon texts in the Bible, this one this morning is the easiest to turn to. Uh, page 1, Genesis chapter 1, verse 1, as we begin a new sermon series this morning. When you found your place there, please stand with me. The reading of God's Word today. Let us pray. Lord God, it is with some excitement that we now begin a new sermon series to study uh, the first things of the book of of Genesis. And uh, we looked to you, O God, by your Holy Spirit to to speak to us in coming days. uh, Bless this church and these families and and every person here, Lord God, by uh, the things that, that you say here concerning things that happened so long ago. Uh, may, Lord God, we be instructed and, and helped, uh, among other things, Lord, to, to see more of your glory, uh, both here in the Bible and also uh, in our world. And may we be, Lord, by this word, equipped better to serve you as we walk the earth and await the glorious return of Jesus Christ at this world's end. All this we pray together today in his name. Amen. So our sermon text this morning is Genesis chapter 1, verse 1. Listen now to the word of God. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. This is the word of the Lord. Please be seated. There's an experience in, in life that I would love for, for each of you to have at least once, uh, though you can have it many times, and I think the more times the better. To have this particular experience, uh, you'll have to be outside, you can't be inside in, in front of some screen, uh, and you'll have to be somewhere where you can look out upon some uh, beautiful part of the earth, uh, a particularly lovely scene from from nature. Uh, so not a, a strip mall, but it could be the ocean, uh, or it could be uh, a valley between two mountains, or a butterfly-filled meadow. You know, the earth is diverse uh, and a beautiful place, so take your pick. Uh, but as you're, you're looking at this beautiful scene before you, make sure that you also, at the same time, look up enough to take into your view an equal share of the sky. Uh, And so when I'm doing this, if I'm wearing a baseball cap, I will turn my cap around backwards so that the bill doesn't obstruct my view. Uh, And you have to look at the sky, uh, sunrise perhaps, as I mentioned earlier, or the bright blue of noonday, the first appearing of the, the stars and the moon at twilight. It doesn't matter. But when the beauty of the heavens and the earth have filled your mind, and have your full attention, and it begins to take your breath away. Then from there, I want you to rise higher still in your thoughts, to contemplate with awe the majesty of the one who created it all. And I'm speaking of the awesome creator of our world. And then worship him. That is the experience of what today I will call theism. 
which is the belief in one creator God. The experience of, of theism, to be clear, is not a saving experience. The problem of sin requires another deeper solution than this. But, as the first words in the Bible show us, the theistic outlook is the proper starting place for a biblical view of the world and everything in it. This morning we begin a sermon series on what's called the primeval history of the book of Genesis. So this will be chapters 1 through 11. Uh, and the word primeval has nothing to do with evil. Uh, it just refers to the earliest ages of world history. The primeval history of the Bible includes basically four accounts. That is the account of creation, the account of the first human beings, both inside and outside the garden, that's Adam and Eve and Cain and Abel, the account of Noah and the flood, and then finally the account of the Tower of Babel. So you all know these Bible stories. In the coming months, we're going to study them together in some depth. And there are two things that I hope for us to understand better through this study. Uh, first, I hope to understand the Bible better. So bring your Bibles uh, and come ready to, to learn. We'll be looking not merely at what happened in these earliest ages of world history, but also asking the important question, and what does it mean? So for instance, what do these stories mean to the Israelites as Moses was preparing them for the promised land? And also, what do these stories mean to us today, Christians, as Christ is preparing us for heaven? By discovering the, the deeper meaning of these stories, I hope to deepen our understanding of the whole Bible as God's word to his people. But then secondly, I also hope by the study of our primeval history to understand the world better. Uh, we live in it. It would be a great help to us if we understood it better. Uh, because it can be awfully confusing out there. And in these first chapters of the Bible, God is explaining to his people a lot about the world, where things came from, and why they are what they are. To understand the world better is to better be able to navigate your way through the world instead of bouncing around helplessly like a penball inside of it. So what I'm saying is that there is a real practical benefit to be gained here from the primeval history of Genesis, and it's a benefit right now. So come to this sermon series to study your Bibles, but at the same time, come as well to learn about your world. There's three questions that I'm asking in this morning's sermon on Genesis 1-1. Let me go ahead and state those questions. First, what does the opening line of the Bible teach us about the relationship between God and the world? And here we'll be exploring this idea of theism, which is the starting place of biblical revelation. Then secondly, what are some other inferior views of the relationship between God and the world? And so here I'll be explaining atheism, pantheism, and polytheism, and, and showing you what's wrong or deficient in them. And then thirdly, as Christians, I'm going to ask this morning, what are some ways that we can act upon our theism 
right now. Not only to show that we, that we are theists, but also personally to benefit from this fundamental belief of the Christian worldview that God created everything. So those are our questions. Let's begin uh, with the first one. Uh, what does the opening line of the Bible teach us about the relationship between God and the world? And here I'll give you a, a brief exegesis of Genesis 1.1. Genesis 1.1 again says, In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. So according to the Jews, uh, these are the words of Moses. Genesis 1.1, the words of Moses. This is the introduction to what the Jews called the book of Moses, the first five books of the Bible, what we sometimes call the Pentateuch. And we ask here, where did Moses get his knowledge of the world's primeval history? Because he was not uh, alive in the days of which he now will be speaking. Well, as a Hebrew, he may have received this as uh, an oral tradition, the oral tradition of his ancestors. Or, as a prophet, he may have received it by immediate revelation from the Lord. But either way, this account is, uh, we understand, inspired by the Holy Spirit, and so to be received through Moses as infallible truth. The Hebrew word for God is Elohim. Uh, and Elohim is, as you may have heard, plural, and so literally is gods. Not God, but gods. And yet, Elohim is here used in other here and other places with a singular verb. So the usual explanation is that the plural Elohim expresses the honor and majesty of the one true God. So it's similar to the way that kings sometimes rather grandly refer to themselves in the plural, saying things like, we hereby decree, when we all know that what they mean is, I hereby decree. Genesis 1.1 offers no explanation for who or what God is. And so we assume here the understanding of Israel in the time of Moses. And that means that God is the Almighty, the true and the living God. The phrase, the heavens and the earth, signify the whole world, and especially from the perspective of man. So you can think of it as the universe. Includes all the planets, all the stars, every galaxy that there is. Moses is telling us how the world, how the universe came into being. And what he's telling us is that Almighty God created it. The Hebrew word bara is only used of God in the Bible. And it means to make something new. There's another Hebrew word, yatsar which means to, to form or fashion something out of pre-existing material. So, for example, we find that word, Yatsar, in Genesis 2-7, which says, And the Lord God formed or fashioned man of the dust of the ground. So the dust was already there, and God formed or fashioned a man out of it. But that's not the word that's used here in Genesis 1-1. For a number of reasons, the church has traditionally held that God's creative act in Genesis 1-1 is what we call creation ex nihilo, or out of nothing. And this understanding of what is happening in Genesis 1-1 seems to be affirmed uh, later in the Bible in Hebrews 11:3, 3 
But the Apostle says this, By faith we understand that the worlds were framed by the word of God, so that the things which are seen were not made of things which are visible. Creation ex nihilo, out of nothing. Moses states that God's creation of the world took place in the beginning. And this is not the beginning of God. God himself is eternal. He has no beginning. So here in Genesis 1.1, it is the eternal God who is creating time along with the world that will exist in time. And thus the clock of world history begins right here. And it is world history that will be, as Kenneth Matthews says, the arena of God's revelation and action. There's no indication in Genesis 1-1 of how old the world is, only that it had a beginning. And so what we're taught in the opening line of the Bible is simply how this world in which we find ourselves came into being. Has it always existed, perhaps? No, we hear it had a beginning. There was a time when it was not. And so how did the world come to exist at all? And the answer is simply and straightforwardly, God created it out of nothing. The heavens and the earth and all things therein, both visible and invisible, the entire thing is God's creation. And if you're paying attention, that means he created us as well. And this understanding of not just the Bible, but reality, is, as I've said, what we call theism. Theos is the Greek word for God. Theism is what we believe about God. And as theists, what we believe is that God exists and that he is the creator of the world. In the first breath of the book of Genesis, theism is established as the biblical and therefore Christian view of the relationship between God and the universe. And that makes theism, as Kenneth Matthews says again, the philosophical cornerstone of the entire biblical revelation. And that's why I'm talking to you about theism today. Now, I've no doubt this is how you see things. You look at the world as theists do. And theism may be so obvious and familiar to do, you wonder, is there any other way of seeing things? And in fact, there is. Historically, there are three other ways besides theism that people have tried to understand and see the world and its relationship to God. So I'm going to name them, I'm going to explain them, and I'm also going to show you how they are, even philosophically, inferior to theism. And a note here to parents, let me suggest that a good follow-up to this sermon would be to, to drill your children, and I'm meaning especially your older children, on these four views of the world. Uh, the terms atheism, pantheism, polytheism, this is going to come up again in their education, and it would be helpful to them to become familiar with these terms and understand the differences between them and to be clear who we are and why. So let's start with atheism. A means no or not. So atheism is the belief that there is no God. He does not exist. You ask the atheists, 
Where did the world come from then? And he answers that he doesn't know. He only knows that God didn't create it because there is no God. Of course, the atheist doesn't know that. That's what he chooses to believe. And an honest atheist will admit that. I've heard uh, very bright atheists do just that. There's no way to prove that God doesn't exist. And yet, for some reason, the atheist is so hostile to the idea of God that he prefers to deny his existence altogether and goes on living as if there is no God. Now, you can find something like an atheist among the ancient Greeks. Epicureans uh, are particularly noted as, as being atheists, and there are atheists today. But a true atheist is a pretty rare bird, uh, and that for good reason. First, it's actually easier to believe that God does exist than to believe that he does not. A lot easier. Why? Because God is a better explanation for the universe than the universe is for itself. The universe is obviously a highly ordered world, intricate and full of wonderful and beautiful things, carefully balanced to support human life, etc., etc., how could such a thing happen without the guiding hand of an intelligent supreme being? The atheist says, time and chance. We say, fat chance. Uh, the psalmist says, you've got to be blind. The heavens declare the glory of God. The firmament shows his handiwork. Day under day under speech, night under night reveals knowledge. There is no speech or language in the world which does not see these things. The earth is full of God's goodness. Everybody sees that. And this is what we call general revelation. God's revealing not only his existence, but also his wisdom, his power, etc., and and through this amazing world that he created and now upholds. And if you've got eyes in your head, you just can't wave that off. Like heaven and earth are not just screaming at us to seek him, the God in whom we live and move and have our being. So in this way, I'm saying the, the world itself makes it far easier to be a theist than to be an atheist. But the other reason why there are so few atheists among us is that without God, it's pretty clear that there's no hope for mankind. And no one wants to believe that. No one wants to be hopeless. Ask the, the real atheist, the hardcore Nietzschean atheist, and he'll tell you, without God, the world is a meaningless accident, and human life is a cruel joke. There's no logic to things. There's no right or wrong. However this came to be, it's not going anywhere good. Human life is but the strange, brief consciousness of our insolvable suffering, and then the lights go. That is, friends, where atheism leaves you philosophically. And who wants to be left there? When there's another option that's actually more plausible. And besides, who can really believe that the world is meaningless when we all experience so much that is meaningful in our lives? 
I mean, when a father comes home from work and his little girl runs to greet him at the door and gives him a great hug, just go ahead and tell him that his life is meaningless. I don't think he'll believe you. I don't think that he can. So think twice before you join the, the lean ranks of the, the atheists. And don't be taken in by their scoffing. They would like you to think they're the smart ones. It's a small club for a good reason. The Bible says that it's the fool who has said in his heart that there is no God. And atheism really is the most senseless and sad of all the worldviews that we consider today. So next let's consider pantheism. Pantheism. Pan means everything. So a panoramic view is a view of everything. A pandemic is a disease that is spread everywhere. So pantheism is the belief not that God created everything, but that God is everything. And everything is God. With a God in the universe just become the same thing. And that may sound like a strange idea to you, but unlike atheism, pantheism is and always has been a very popular idea among people all over the world. There were ancient Greek pantheists like the Stoics. Most Eastern religions today are pantheistic, like Hinduism. And in spite of its Christian tradition, Western people have shown signs of, of gravitating towards pantheism as well. From, from the Romantics and the Transcendentalists of the 19th century to nature-worshipping environmentalists today, it seems that pantheism just doesn't go away. So, what does the pantheist say? What does he believe? He says something like, the universe is a divine emanation. That's their word. Everything we, we see and are continually emanates from God as part of God, and so returns again unto God. So that God is something like the unchanging soul of the ever-changing world. So, well, what does that mean? Is God a person? Or is He not? Is He just a life force? Is He the Logos, as the Stoics would say? The universal reason in everything? Is that all we're talking about? Is math? Honestly, it's hard to tell what they mean. And I'm not sure that they know. But... It is an attractive idea to people, nonetheless, for some reason. So what is the attraction here? Why does pantheism persist? The pantheistic worldview does suggest a sort of beautiful idea to people. It's the idea that there's a universal harmony in everything. That everything is, is one. And that the one is divine. And this way, pantheism, among other things, strongly suggests that everything happens for a reason, and people like that idea. It's a comforting thought to them. It helps them to just sort of go with the flow. And to the pantheist, uh, what is worship but life itself? And, and there's no more sacred place than the contemplative walk in the woods, feeling God in the wind and in the trees and, and everywhere else. So you can see how that sort of thing could be appealing to people and give rise to some really great romantic poetry. But, there's a hidden problem in pantheism to warn you about. If you go far enough down the pantheistic path, you'll run into it. When we are taught by the prophets of pantheism to see everything as divine, absolutely everything, 
as everything resolving itself into just one divine being, then what happens is distinctions start to disappear, including some very important distinctions, most notably the distinction between good and evil. There's a story about Francis Schaeffer. If you don't know, Schaeffer was a Christian philosopher who was influential in the formation of, of our denomination, the Presbyterian Church in America. And Schaefer was delivering a, a series of lectures at a university one time. He was with some students that evening in their dorm room, and, and one of them, he, he found, was just enamored with pantheism. And so Schaefer pressed this fellow on, on this particular problem. What are you saying? Are both good and evil divine if everything is God? Are both good and evil divine? Shall we worship them alike? Is that what you're saying, as the Hindus do? And the student wouldn't back off, but he continued to persist in this. And so Schaefer, the better to make his point with this kid, grabbed a, a boiling kettle of water from the stove. This is the story. Held it over the student's head and then said to him, tell me, do you really believe that there is no difference between kindness and cruelty. A little harder to maintain that position when a guy's about to pour boiling water on your head. And that's the question that you'll want to consider carefully before you fall in love with pantheism of whatever kind. Here in the book of Genesis, the God of the Bible creates an ordered world, and he does so how? By making distinctions. Dividing the light from the darkness. That's how we come out of chaos and into a cosmos. Whereas the god of pantheism, if you can call the thing a god, destroys those very distinctions. And so don't you see an effect destroys the ordered world. And when that happens, particularly when the line between good and evil disappears, don't be surprised to find pantheists working evil in the darkness, calling it good, and treating the innocent with inhumane cruelty. Innocents like the poor children who are temple prostitutes in Hindu temple. Pantheism may be a lovely idea to people of a poetic disposition, but as a philosophy, it has shown itself to be a twisted, hellish thing in the world. And then finally, let's consider polytheism. Poly means many. So a polygon is a many-sided shape. A polyglot is someone who speaks many languages. So polytheism is the belief in many gods, none of whom actually created the world. Polytheism, you know, was popular among the ancients. You're most familiar with the Greco-Roman gods, Zeus, Athena, Apollo, Aphrodite, that group. I'm not sure anyone still worships them today. Polytheism is rarely encountered anymore, at least in modern civilization. Though I must say, our current fascination with superheroes is interesting. Should paganism return to the West, and I think in his returning, I think it's already here, I would not rule out a possible resurgence of polytheism in some form. The gods of polytheism make for very interesting characters, and their stories have always been entertaining, and they still are. But understand, none of them is the Almighty, and as in Greco-Roman mythology, that leaves the ruling powers of the universe divided against and fighting 
with one another. So according to polytheism, the confusion that exists in the world is not confusion that we create, but confusion that is created by the gods. And that means that rather than looking to heaven to solve our problems, a polytheist blames the gods and does his best to get away from them. So polytheism may give us great characters, great stories. It doesn't give us great gods. And if it's taken seriously as a religion, polytheism only increases our confusion, makes us distrustful of deity, which is not as very helpful when we're trying to navigate this troubled world. So now contrast these three worldviews, atheism, pantheism, polytheism, with the theism of Genesis 1.1. Even philosophically, theism is in every way superior. Again, theism is the belief in one eternal God, infinite in perfection. The world is his beautiful creation, which he brought into being out of nothing. We are among his beautiful and beloved creatures. And with perfect wisdom and great benevolence for all that he has made, the Almighty rules over us all in time. That is theism. Theism is better than atheism. It's a far better explanation for the world than what atheism offers, which is no explanation at all. And it gives us hope for the world, from beyond the world, so that we can remain hopeful even when the situation in the world feels hopeless. Theism is better than atheism. Theism is also better than pantheism. Theism promotes a far healthier relationship to the world than pantheism does. Theists can appreciate nature, but without worshipping it, and so never confuse a monkey with God. And we retain the ideal in theism that everything happens for a reason and a benevolent one, and yet do so with our moral sensibilities intact, being given a reason in our religion to be patient and to be good. Theism is better than pantheism. And theism is better than polytheism. You may prefer the stories of the gods in polytheism, but you'd be a fool to prefer the gods themselves. The Creator is a God truly worthy to be worshipped. He is the Almighty. It's not He who is the cause of our confusion, but He is the obvious one to deliver us from it. And so theism encourages us to humble ourselves and seek His face. Ask yourselves, why is there so much immigration to the West? Why has Western civilization produced the most just, the most prosperous society in the world so that people from all over the world want to come and live here? A big piece of that puzzle is the influence of the Christian religion and its theistic worldview. Starting with Genesis 1-1, the Bible has taught our people and taught them long ago a better way at looking at the world And that has made us more humane and hopeful, our society more just, and our way more prosperous. Exchange that theism now for either atheism, pantheism, or polytheism, it all just disappears. That's my theory. And if things keep going the way they're going in the West, we may just have a chance to put that theory to test. But whatever happens in our society at large, the church in its midst has the opportunity to act upon its theism right now. To not only show that we are theists, but also personally to benefit 
from this fundamental belief of the Christian worldview that in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. And so I'm going to frame that, frame that final consideration as an exhortation. So prepare to be exhorted. You ready? Christians, on the basis of the theism of Genesis 1-1, go and worship God as the creator of the heavens and the earth. And what would that mean? First, it means love him supremely. Love him supremely. There are many lovely things in this world, things that you rightly love, lovely people, lovely moments that you cherish, and all of these lovely things you see, they all come from God. God is our Heavenly Father, and as the Bible teaches, every good and perfect gift comes to us from Him. And that's true today. Even in spite of our rebellion and fall into sin, our Creator has not left Himself without witness to this wayward world, but still causes His Son to rise and shine on us, and His rain to fall and water our fields and to fill our bellies with bread. And that's why the psalmist can stand beholding the heavens and the earth that God has made and say in truth, it is full of His goodness. And so all of the enjoyment of that good in our lives taken together should lead us to love God more than all of it put together. Every day, to the end of our days, let us never forget that. If there are any things to be loved in this world, and there are, then there is reason to love God most of all. It all comes from Him. Secondly, worshiping God as the creator of the heavens and the earth means also fearing Him supremely. With that high respect that we call reverence. That's what the Bible means when it speaks of the fear of the Lord. We fear other things, powerful men, powerful forces of nature, and that's understandable, but what of God? Do we fear Him? God who in the beginning laid the foundations of the earth, that they should not be moved, and spread out the heavens like a curtain, calling the stars by their name. God who created the world is infinitely more powerful than anything in the world. Any army of men, any storm on the sea, and there is no authority so great as the authority of God who will someday sit in judgment of this world. And let us never forget that. This is why it was a high crime in Israel to take the Lord's name in vain. Because taking the Lord's name in vain undermines people's reverence for God. And that is a dangerous indiscretion. If there's anything to be feared in this world by men, and there is, then there is reason to fear God most of all. And then thirdly, worshiping God as the creator of the heavens and the earth means that if this almighty God, whom we should both love and fear, our creator, should ever speak to tell us something that he wants us to know, then we should heed his voice as the most important voice that we have ever heard in this world. When I say that we will be studying the Bible in this sermon series, I mean, of course, that we will be studying the Word of God together on Sunday morning. God, our Creator, the Creator of everything. And no one understands the world like its Creator. 
No one understands time and space like God who created both time and space. No one understands the mysteries of the natural realm like God. The swirling winds, the howl of wolves, the wings of beetles in the night. No one understands us like God who made us and whose image we bear. No one understands the needs of children. No one understands the palpitations of the human heart. No one understands the higher longings of our immortal souls like God. No one understands what is good like God and what is evil. And so can rightly divide the darkness from the light as God himself did in this world long ago. So seriously, who understands the way of wisdom in the world like God? Do you? Job? Is that what you think? Is that why you talk the way you talk? The Bible says, shut your mouth. There's no greater wisdom among the men of this world than to shut our mouths and humble ourselves to listen carefully when the Creator speaks and heed His Word. That's why the fear of God is the beginning of wisdom. When God speaks, atheists dismiss it as anthropology, fools. When God speaks, pantheists cannot distinguish his speech from the speech of devils. It's all one and the same thing to them. When God speaks, the polytheists despise it as the utterance of some little meddlesome God among many such gods. You see, nobody really listens to God when he speaks like a theist, like someone Anyone who understands first and foremost that God created us and everything. And all of you are theists. If you know this God of Genesis 1.1. And so finally as you receive this exhortation this morning. I want to make sure to point out to you all. That the God of Genesis 1.1. The God of our theism. Is the Lord Jesus Christ. That's the God of Genesis 1.1. Our Lord, Jesus Christ. Ah, the Apostle John knew what he was doing when he started his gospel with the same three words as the book of Genesis, saying, in the beginning. But unlike the prophet Moses, it was the privilege of the Apostle John as a minister of the new covenant to identify Elohim with Jesus Christ. John 1, 1 through 2, in the beginning was the word and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through Him, and without Him, nothing was made that was made. As Israel was preparing to enter the Promised Land, Genesis 1-1 reminded the Israelites that the Lord, their God, who had called them out of Egypt, and in whom they were now to put their trust, was none other than the Almighty Elohim, Creator of the heavens and the earth. But the Apostle John invokes this same verse from the book of Moses to show us as Christians that Jesus Christ, who calls us out of sin and in whom we are now to trust, is this very God come to us in the flesh. When we see Jesus Christ dying on the cross, John wants us to see that it is not some fellow creature hanging there, but the creator of the world who has come to this his world to die for us his creatures and save us from our sins against Him. Such is His love for the world. 
And when we see Jesus Christ rising again from the grave and calling his disciples to follow him now unto life, eternal life, John wants us to see that the God who created the world in the beginning now begins with his own resurrection, the work of what he calls the new creation. Behold, I create new heavens and the new earth, cried the voice of the Lord in Isaiah 65, 17. And by the same Holy Spirit, the Apostle Paul declared to the church in 2 Corinthians 5, 17, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. Old things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. Barah. Who can do this, you ask? Who can make all things new? John answers, how about the God who made all things new in the beginning? I bet he could do it. And that's precisely who the Lord Jesus Christ is. He is that God. The author of Genesis is the author of creation. And the author of Revelation is the author of the new creation. And Jesus Christ is author of both and every age and every page in between. He is the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, the author and the finisher of our faith, our creator, our savior, our God. So stand and take into your view sometime both the heavens and the earth and worship him who made you. There's more beyond that to experience in life, but I can think of no better place to begin. Shall we pray?